Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, W.C. Fields. Now let's continue with part two of W.C. Fields. When he got to California, Fields crashed at the 22-acre Newhall Mansion estate of friend Charlie Mack, a fellow vaudeville performer. He wasn't having much luck professionally until he happened to run into another old associate at the Biltmore Hotel in Santa Barbara. Marilyn Miller was about to star in Warner Brothers' Her Majesty Love and needed a character actor to play her father, an old juggling showman. Fields was perfect, and he got the job at $5,000 a week, with four weeks guaranteed. Unfortunately, Her Majesty Love flopped terribly. Miller was at the end of a contract that would not be renewed, and Fields was again unemployed. It would be six months before he appeared in the surreal and forgettable Million Dollar Legs, the first film that Fields shot with had his trademark clip-on mustache, a prop he would never use again. Another six months would pass before Paramount used him in If I Had a Million, a star-studded production that importantly teamed him up in the complicated seven-part plot with Allison Skipworth. Despite a cast that featured George Raft, Gary Cooper, Charles Lawton, Jack Oakey, Fields, and Charles Ruggles, the film barely turned a profit, and because Fields was on a one-picture deal with Paramount, he would have to hustle for his next job. Deliverance came in the form of legendary producer Max Sennett, who bankrolled Fields for a series of two reelers, short films that ran a little over 20 minutes. Fields figured this would be easy money, as all he had to do was write up a lot of the comedy sketches he had done in vaudeville and get them on film. Things started off well with The Dentist, but then went off the rails with The Fatal Glass of Beer, a film that was universally panned and so alarmed Senate that he decided to interfere directly with the creative process, which irritated his star completely. Luckily, because of the success of The Dentist, Field was attached to his next feature, International House, which would provide him with a major career breakthrough. Despite a preposterous plot... Fields debuts while landing in an autogyro and spends most of the film either aspiring to be or under the influence, his W.C. persona on display throughout the film. Reviews were wildly enthusiastic, and box office was good enough to prompt Paramount to talk about a long-term deal. Considering that he had just lost $100,000 in a bank failure that was typical of the early 30s, and the entire film industry was on rather shaky financial ground, Field signed a deal for four pictures over 10 months at $4,375 a week, with an option for a fifth. 
years after being canned by Paramount from his silent picture contract, Fields was back and bigger than ever. He had outlasted contemporaries like Ramon Navarro, Gloria Swanson, Douglas Fairbanks, and Mary Pickford. Despite his financial ups and downs, Fields always lived pretty well, renting and never buying homes throughout Los Angeles. After leaving Newhall, he rented a house on Toluca Lake so that he could row across the water to the Lakeside Country Club, where he played as much golf as possible. Fields would quickly dispatch two more Max Senate shorts before getting involved in his first feature under his new deal. Because he got complete creative control over scripts, another of his demands, Fields spent much of his time at home polishing gags with other writers, his fully stocked bar and added benefit. The result was Tilly and Gus, which would not only pair Fields up again with Allison Skipworth, it would also pit him against infant Ronald Leroy Overacker, a.k.a. Baby Leroy, a one-year-old plus character actor who had taken the industry by storm. Much of the lore surrounding Fields' alleged dislike of children would stem from this association. Not only was Baby Leroy Fields' perpetual on-screen foil, he also made production difficult, most likely terrified by Fields' enormously bulbous nose. Even still photos of Fields and Baby Leroy offset show him in various degrees of distress. On stage, he dragged out scenes with perpetual crying. With the film about to be released, everybody involved thought they had a disaster on their hands. Instead, audience howled from beginning to end, and box office was solid despite competition from the Marx Brothers' Duck Soup and Mae West's I'm No Angel. W.C. Fields would whip through several solid performances during the remainder of 1933 and 1934. Six of a Kind, You're Telling Me, and The Old Fashioned Way. Stuck in the middle of these efforts were Fields' least favorite role as Humpty Dumpty in Alice in Wonderland and the dreadful Mrs. Wiggs of the Cabbage Patch, which finally proved to the Paramount Brass that casting Fields as a secondary character was a mistake. In fact, the next chapter of his career contained three of his most unforgettable roles and established him as one of Hollywood's biggest stars. W.C. Fields always maintained that only studio administrators and behind-the-camera influence was what kept him from earlier screen success. This belief was underlined by the production of what may be Fields' most hilarious and quintessential effort. It's a gift. Fields began production in June 1934 with an 11-page story outline that mostly paralleled the finished film. By the end of August, it was a completed 86-page script, with various scenes again taken from bits or ideas from Fields' vaudeville past. Fields' persona of the henpecked husband, constantly upbraided and belittled by his overbearing wife, condescended to by his children, and desperately seeking miraculous escape from business failure and irritating neighbors, would crystallize in Harold Bissonnet, a grocer who receives a modest inheritance and seemingly squanders it on a California orange ranch. The film is nothing more than a sequence of bits that are woven together, Fields improvising more often than not, until the conclusion leaves him cleverly turning the tables and walking away with his much-deserved fortune and solitude. Only days after It's a Gift was completed, MGM and David O. Selznick ran into trouble during their production of David Copperfield. Charles Lawton, against his better judgment, had been persuaded to take the key role of Wilkins Micawber, and after three days of shooting, the skilled actor was convinced that he was completely unsuitable to continue. Reluctantly, Selznick and director George Cukor set about getting the man they had initially contemplated casting, W.C. Fields. Because he was under contract with Paramount, the actor would not come cheap, and Fields, always mindful of money and sensing he had MGM over a barrel, held out for $50,000 for two weeks' work. 
There were other stipulations concerning Fields' next film, and some of that money, per his contract with Paramount, went to the studio, but the actor would be well compensated for one of his most memorable roles. Fields was also a student of Dickens and was quite attentive to the part. While eating in the MGM commissary, he is said to have remarked, To play Micawber is a lifelong dream. I can't believe my good luck. Fields was cast with child star Freddie Bartholomew in the title role. In fact, part of MGM's marketing strategy was to pack the film with well-known British movie stars to broaden the film's international appeal. With Fields finishing up on David Copperfield, It's a Gift was ready to go through the preview process. The response from audience and critics alike was a resounding thumbs up, and the film was a huge commercial success. By sheer volume, Fields was quickly becoming Paramount's biggest grossing comedy star, and his unusual deal with MGM only added to his industry stature. The actor was also looking forward to the premiere of David Copperfield at Grauman's Chinese Theater, but was underwhelmed with Selznick's final cut, which limited him to all of 17 minutes on screen, much of what he thought was his best work left on the cutting room floor. Over two hours long, the film was already challenged with having to convey the immensely detailed and character-filled opus, complete with both a younger and progressively older main character. Fields' misgivings proved overly cautious— Bolstered by strong box office in the United Kingdom, Copperfield generated millions in profit, with Fields even receiving some momentum for an Academy Award nomination. When his lease ran out on Toluca Lake, Fields rented a seven-acre ranch in Encino. Even his personal life was upgraded as, after a succession of attractive but utterly submissive and dependent female companions, Fields took up with actress Carlotta Monti, a stunning brunette who would conduct a tempestuous relationship with Fields for the rest of his life. For example, W.C. was in the habit of having his girlfriends take dictation of his ideas, jokes, and dialogue. When asked to serve in this role, Monty informed Fields that she was an actress and not a secretary. Fields then decided to hire a 35-year-old divorced mother, Magda Michael, as his formal secretary, which turned out to be a wise move. He was exhausted but pressed on with two films, Mississippi with Bing Crosby and The Man on a Flying Trapeze, which was similar to It's a Gift. Luckily for Fields, he had negotiated a one-year, three-picture deal for $300,000 before Mississippi because only weeks after concluding trapeze, he virtually collapsed. His afflictions described publicly as pneumonia, back trouble, or the grip. In truth, Fields was suffering from decades of massive alcohol abuse that had finally taken its toll. He drank constantly throughout the workday, typically whiskey or gin mixed with fruit juice that made it less obvious to those around him. Currently for sale on a memorabilia website, an October 6, 1934, $124.02 bank check made out to the Hollywood Liquor Shop to cover Fields' monthly tab, which adjusted for inflation would be almost $2,000 today. For decades, Fields has generally agreed to have consumed, on average, a couple of quart bottles of liquor on a daily basis, consumption that caught up with him in 1935. He fled to the remote desert location of Saboba Hot Springs near Hemet, California, to attempt to dry out, but things only got worse. Late summer 1935 brought the bad news that his buddy Will Rogers had been killed in an Alaskan plane crash. Out of commission, plans for future studio projects fell by the wayside until Paramount hit on the idea of a remake of Poppy, Fields' old stage hit from the early 20s. Anxious to get back to work, Fields convinced both studio executives and insurance company doctors that he was fit enough to do the picture. 
Rumors were rampant that Fields was in such bad shape that he would never make another film, so his return was big news. But optimism dissipated when Fields, so ill and weak that he could barely keep his balance, needed stagehands to literally catch him if he fell during a scene. As soon as he finished filming, many of his scenes handled by a stand-in, Fields returned to Saboba Hot Springs. Plagued by skin hypersensitivity, serious lung congestion, and Paget's disease, he continued his heavy alcohol consumption. By now, his entourage included not only Magda, but his brother and Carlotta, who began supplying a vegetarian diet that Fields barely touched. His problems were worsened by a local doctor who began injecting Fields with barbiturates to get him to sleep. Field was unable to hoodwink a studio physician who diagnosed him as incapable of work, and Paramount put him on a salary suspension. By June 12, 1936, Field was coughing up blood, and the doctor, Jesse Citrone, admitted him to a Riverside hospital. In an oxygen tent, Fields was examined by several L.A.-based specialists who told Citrone that his patient would probably not survive. The actor took a turn for the better when he began to refuse the daily sedatives prescribed by Citrone, and he eventually decided to move to a sanitarium in Pasadena, Las Encinas, where he would spend the next nine months. Here he cut back on alcohol consumption and regained his health to at least a stable degree. Two external events seriously upset Fields during his rehabilitation. After Fields deliberately left the care of Dr. Citrone, the physician submitted a bill for $12,000, an astronomical sum for the time period. This would evolve into a lengthy civil case complete with jury trials and appeals, centered around what Fields thought was the administration of inappropriate medication and excessive fees. Ultimately, in 1939, Citrone was awarded $2,000, a testament to Fields' tenacity when fighting over a buck. Proving that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, Citrone's son Robert, as treasurer in 1995, would eventually bankrupt Orange County in the biggest municipal failure in U.S. history. Much more annoying was the appearance of Fields' wife Harriet and their son Claude, who took up residence in Los Angeles, ostensibly concerned about his declining health. Fields believed that they were merely preparing for his demise and wanted to be able to stake a financial claim in the event of his death. Fields had never divorced his wife and didn't even bother to ask, knowing that she would refuse, allegedly because of her devout Catholic faith. But Fields suspected that Hattie and her son knew that a divorce settlement meant no more access to Fields and his considerable wealth. W.C. was especially disappointed in his son, who even in his late 20s and despite an Ivy League education, was still under his mother's thumb and participating in the unceasing protestations of poverty and neglect. Fields vented his anger in creative ways, naming the ne'er-do-well leech stepson in The Man on the Flying Trapeze, Claude, and writing his wife's character as constantly nagging, intrusive, judgmental, and condescending. With Paramount reluctant to cast him in anything tangible, Fields decided to head in a different direction and embrace the medium of radio. By 1937, he was appearing on the prestigious Chase and Sanborn Hour, mostly trading barbs with Edgar Bergen's ventriloquist dummy, Charlie McCarthy. The radio show quickly became the most popular in the U.S. But the pressure on Fields to perform on a weekly basis was unpleasant, and as soon as he got another film from Paramount, he quit. Unfortunately, this film, the big broadcast of 1938, was a terrible attempt at an extravaganza that not even Fields could save, and the critics responded accordingly. It would eventually cause Paramount to cut him loose, thinking that his best days were behind him. 
Now a free agent, there was talk of Field starring in the much-anticipated MGM musical The Wizard of Oz in the title role. How close Fields actually came to obtaining this legendary part is still a matter of dispute, and an offer to sign with Universal, which would lead to steady work, most likely made Fields stand aside. Frank Morgan, an MGM contract player and character actor, was given the role, quite possibly what MGM had in mind all along. Fields would next appear in his first universal film, You Can't Cheat an Honest Man, a film that involved Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Fields was so combative and disruptive on set that the film was actually put together in the editing room. Enough material to barely eke out a wildly successful hit and establishing Fields as Universal's biggest star. On paper, Fields' next collaboration seemed an inspired bit of movie industry improvisation. To much excitement, it was announced that Fields would next team up with Mae West. One of America's biggest stars in the mid-30s, West, now aged 43, had also recently been cut loose by Paramount after her popularity waned. Months would pass before a script and director would be selected, the result of Fields' cantankerous and territorial approach to his participation. Surprisingly, the two actors were able to coexist, and what was eventually entitled My Little Chickadee came to pass. The film was a commercial success, but West was apparently embittered by the experience in which Fields was paid substantially more, got a dubious screenwriting credit, and she received poor reviews that caused Universal to pass on another more expensive option for a second film. She would disparage Fields for the rest of her life. Fields forged ahead with The Bank Dick, one of his best films and another effort in which he overcame a dreadful script with his own ad-libs and slapstick. Fields also was able to get character actors Grady Sutton and Franklin Pangborn into key roles. Despite fabulous previews, Fields badmouthed the film as an impending failure. While the critics loved it and proclaimed it as a triumphant uptick for Fields' career, the film did not take off and the public remained indifferent. Over time, the bank dick would grow in popularity, but creatively it was Fields' last hurrah. At age 61, he sensed that his career as a leading man was coming to a close. Universal used him one more time in Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, a dreadful bomb that proved him correct. Other than some cameo appearances throughout the mid-40s, Fields' screen career was essentially over. Fields had leased a Bel Air mansion in the late 30s, but the lessor eventually reoccupied the property, and W.C. rented a mansion in a gated Los Feliz section of Los Angeles across the street from director Cecil B. DeMille on, of all things, DeMille Drive. DeMille's daughter and son-in-law, actor Anthony Quinn, also lived nearby, which had tragic consequences when their two-year-old son wandered onto Fields' property on March 15, 1941. The boy would be intrigued by a small toy boat in a lily pond in front of the mansion, and in an attempt to retrieve it, would eventually drown. Fields returned home to a tumultuous scene of DeMille, Quinn, firefighters, policemen, and press milling around the covered body of the child. The incident only added to Fields' dark moods and increasing attempts to isolate himself in the large house, no longer the convivial host of the past. However, in August of 1942, an incident occurred which brightened Fields' spirits, perhaps because he understood the effect it would have on Harriet Fields. After a lengthy courtship, Claude Fields, in August of 1942, finally wed his longtime girlfriend, Ruth. Although Fields returned the registered male wedding invitation unopened, W.C. became close with his daughter-in-law, especially after Claude enlisted in the Navy in 1942. When his first grandchild was born in August of 1943, Fields was present and especially delighted when the child was named William Claude Fields III. 
Professionally, Fields was still able to occasionally work on radio, but he spent much of these years cooped up in his house in the company of Magda Michael and his longtime housekeeper, Dell. By 1945, Fields literally had no show business income for the entire year, and he began jotting notes for an autobiography, an ominous sign, as he always maintained that was something one did at the end of life. Fields' lease for the DeMille Drive home expired in October of 1945, and he decided to relocate to a bungalow on the grounds of Las Encinas. By now, he had been diagnosed with degenerative liver disease and told to stop drinking, advice he ignored, instead increasing his alcohol intake, perhaps to hasten the inevitable. In 1946, he would make a last radio appearance with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and record some comedy bits at Les Paul's studio, the first multi-track recordings ever made. His relationship with Carlotta Monti had completely deteriorated over money, and his son had moved his family to Northern California. Upon Claude's return to Los Angeles in July, Fields again sensed that this had more to do with his failing health, and he now rarely saw his grandchildren. He was especially indignant when his son suggested he speak with a prominent Catholic priest and university president. Fields, an ardent atheist, until the very end. In December, Magna faithfully booked Fields to appear on Bing Crosby's radio show, the recording to take place on December 22nd. But Fields was sinking fast and would eventually have to cancel. He spent his last days saying goodbye to friends like Eddie Cantor, writer Gene Fowler, and Carlotta Monti. He had already rewritten his will to give her at least some money and a weekly stipend. Fortunately, he would not be around to witness his wife Harriet's relentless pursuit of his estate— a dreadfully embarrassing legal battle with executrix Magda Michael and Carlotta Monti, among others, that lasted eight years and eventually yielded her a substantial sum of money. Whether or not Fields' son Claude benefited from this development is unknown. Whatever warmth generated by his marriage seems to have dissipated, as his father ultimately bequeathed him the sum of one dollar. Fields also would not have to read Carlotta's self-serving and mostly apocryphal memoir, W.C. Fields and Me, published in 1971, or witness his portrayal in the ensuing film, his part mangled insufferably by Rod Steiger. It was probably not surprising that Fields would start to deteriorate during the holidays. Unlike the contrived dislike of dogs or children, Fields genuinely detested Christmas. The son of close friend Gene Fowler once wrote of visiting Fields on December 25th in 1940. The account is both hilarious and poignant, a revelation into who Fields really was and the many facets of his complicated personality shaped by years of professional struggle and deep loneliness. Will Fowler accompanied his father to the DeMille Drive house and wrote years later, the house was hidden behind overgrown bushes and hedges not far from the center of Hollywood, a town that supported him, but that he scorned both philosophically and emotionally. Hollywood, Uncle Claude said, is the gold cap on a tooth that should have been pulled out years ago. His apparent aversion to holidays was equal to his dislike of the film Capital. By some mischance that day, a servant switched on the radio, and here came floating over it a Noel Corral. Turn it off! Cease! Fields screamed. Give me an axe, a heavy tomahawk, the royal mace of England. I'll smash the thing and its illegitimate fugue. Then he added menacingly, I'm changing my will. Nobody who observes Christmas will be mentioned in my last testament. Not a farthing for them, man or woman. Uncle Claude, said my father. We teasingly called him Uncle Claude because he greatly disliked that name, which was his middle name. Do you really hate Christmas, or is it just another one of your well-advertised cantankerous poses? 
at least fields muttered. They don't serve the tainted day here with snow. Sleigh bells give me double nausea. He arose and retreated to the shade, dragging his wrought iron garden chair behind him. All right, he said. I suppose you'll go blatting to all the world about it, but I'm going to tell you why I eschew Christmas and other silly holidays. It's because those days point up a thing called loneliness. An actor on the road, as I was for so long, and around the world seven times, finds himself all alone on the days when everyone else has friends and companionship. It's not too good to be in Australia or in Scotland or in South Africa, as I was on tour all alone on Christmas Day, and to see and hear a lot of happy strangers welcoming that two-faced merriment monger Santa Claus who passes you by. We're all lonely enough as it is. By God, I was born lonely. Now Field slowly started rocking on a stationary chair, one eye on the gin bottle atop his portable bar constructed from a red, four-wheel child's wagon. Some weeks earlier, he had been at Saboba Hot Springs, a California health resort, where he was compelled to partake only of the native waters. He had imbibed nothing more powerful than ginger ale ever since the repair job. But Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving and all the rest, he said, make me even more lonely. Uncle Claude's gaze returned to the bottle of gin. I've just reached a momentous decision, he announced. I've either got to take a drink or shoot all the Santa Clauses infesting the boulevards. He made himself a triple martini. It may interest you to know, he added after a few sips, that tomorrow I am removing both your names from my will. It was a hefty bequest, too. Oh, well, if you prefer mistletoe. When we started to leave, Uncle Claude asked us to wait a minute. I have something for you. Each year he gave us a joke Christmas present. The previous Christmas it had been a large Morocco-bound volume embossed with gold letters declaring, Places where I am not wanted, W.C. Fields. When opened, it was discovered to be the thick Los Angeles phone book. He returned from inside the house, carrying envelopes. Open this later, he ordered. That evening we both opened our envelopes. His customary vulgar hand-drawn sketch of Christmas hated did not fall out. Instead, this was a small Christmas card bearing a watercolor by Uncle Claude, showing him as a red-and-white bearded Santa Claus puffing on a very large cigar. A trail of green smoke messaged, Merry Xmas. W.C. Fields died on Christmas Day, 1946. Despite the legal protestations of his wife and son, he was eventually cremated and interred in a vault in Forest Lawn Cemetery. The plaque adorning his ashes merely lists his stage name and the years of his birth and death. Contrary to urban myth, there is no epitaph concerning the city of Philadelphia. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about W.C. Fields. Much of the information for this presentation came from the books W.C. Fields, A Biography by James Curtis, W.C. Fields by Himself with Commentary by Ronald Fields, and W.C. Fields, A Life on Film by Ronald J. Fields. There are also additional photographs 
bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.